Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name, written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. I'm your host, Corey Osler, and today we're going to talk about chapter two in the book, Attributes of God. The title of the chapter is Apostasy and Concepts of Perfection, and just as that title indicates, we're going to go over kind of what Mormons consider the apostasy and how it's kind of more influenced by some differences between the idea of God and how a skewing of that has led to some wrong ideas about God. And then we're going to actually talk about two systems. One is generally referred to as the absolutist or Thomist system, and then process theology. So, to begin, the first section in this chapter is titled Confluence of Greek Philosophy in Christian Thought. I just wanted to read one sentence from this and then let my dad here tell us a little more about just this basic intro section before we go into each section. So from here it says, Mormons believe that traditional Christianity took a wrong turn by adopting Greek philosophy as the matrix to understand God. And this generally began with the patristic writers. So who are these patristic writers and what do you mean that Greek thought influenced the ideas of God? Let's just kind of introduce the subject in general. The patristics include um, beginning with Clement, Ignatius, and Hippolytus. These are basically the earliest fathers. How, how early are we talking here? Well, Clement, you're talking about um, 120 A.D. Uh, many regard Clement as the pope immediately after Peter, to give you an idea of how the Catholic tradition would handle that. And then you've got um, Polycarp. And so you have these early writers. And it's evident that these earliest writers were um, a product of the Greek world. Um, when they write, they write in Greek. The thought world within which they're operating is that of Hellenism. Hellenism is, is another word for, for Greek because it, it comes from Hellenikos, which means which is the Greek language that was spoken at the time. Though the New Testament writers spoke a particular form of Greek known as Koine. And so you have these earliest writers, but then you get the first of the really philosophically minded writers, Justin Martyr. And Justin Martyr is writing about 165 A.D., and it's very clear that Justin Martyr has read the works of Plato. In fact, he makes the comment that Plato had an idea of the Christian God <laughs> and essentially baptizes the, the God of Plato. And when I'm talking the God of Plato, we're talking about a, a kind of bifurcated because there's in, in this kind of thought, there's kind of the absolute God who has nothing to do with the world, and then there's a demiurge. Um, you get a parallel um, development somewhat in Judaism, but um, you're really talking about the early philosophers in Christian thought. After that, you were looking at Irenaeus, who's writing about 200 AD. Irenaeus is one of the most influential writers in Christian history. He, he wrote a work called Adversus Aurasis, which is the Latin title. Uh, it's against heresies, and he is taking on the Gnostic ideas. Gnosticism was a form of Christianity, which also grew up in the Greek world, but it is kind of a, and it has many, many forms, but it is a, a mystical, mythological take on Christianity by and large. 
And Irenaeus sees it creeping into the Christian world and uses Greek philosophy as a means of combating the infiltration of Gnosticism into the Christian world. And then you get Clement of Alexandria, who was writing about 220 AD. He's very clearly steeped in in Platonic thought. And there are two types, really two major types of Platonism at this time. There's what's known as Middle Platonism, which is... uh, a particular form of Platonism, then there's Neoplatonism, which is kind of a new development of Plato, and that's by a, a non-Christian writer primarily, who the Christians read a lot of, and that's Plotinus. And then you get the brilliant um, Christian writer, Oregon. Now, Oregon was later made out to be a heretic, but Oregon's writings are among the most brilliant, so we're, we're talking between 250 and 300, and you get this brilliant work by Oregon. But the primary influence of, of Greek thought in Christianity came by the theologian who is probably the most influential theologian in Christian history, and that's uh, Augustine of Hippo. And he's writing about uh, 400, and um, Augustine is a convert to Christianity, and he writes beautifully and, and voluminously. There are not many people who have read everything that, that Augustine wrote because he wrote so much. <laughs> We're talking literally hundreds of major works. And Augustine virtually remade, in my opinion, remade Christianity into a type of deterministic Platonism. Briefly, if you could, like, I don't want to get too much into it, but, well, two things. First, what's the basic idea of Plato for those that don't know anything about why we're talking about him? And why is Greek thought, why are they next to Greek thought? How is it coming in? Are they living in Greece? Is Greek kind of, as I guess I understood, it's kind of like the dominant form of education that is like a cultural thing? Or like, how is how is Greek thought coming into all these different countries that happen to be Christian? Because I, I understood Christianity started in more of the Roman area. And so... Are they already steeped in Greek thought, or did, I thought they had their own thing? Well, Christianity, of course, arises out of Judaism, and the earliest Christians were just Jews um, who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They continued to be Jews for a long time. They continued to practice the Mosaic Law. It took them a long time to define the relationship of Christianity to the Mosaic Law and how it related. It begins very early, but it begins with Paul. In, in primary part, remember Paul is writing in, in Greek, and he is thoroughly educated in both the rabbinic tradition and in more formal Greek thought. And so you get this kind of interaction with Greek thought already with Paul. Paul then goes to the various Greek isles and, and uh, into Turkey and, and places where the Greek-speaking influence is strong, and he, he leaves basic communities behind and they're left kind of shepherdless, if you will. They begin to do their own thing, and his epistles are written to try to keep the people that he taught and converted on the narrow path that he had taught them. And if they divert from that, he considers them to be apostates. His word, not mine. And so you get the New Testament arising out of this attempt to kind of convey and control the converts in the Greek world. Now, it's true that that Rome was the dominant power at the time, but Christianity is, is not growing so much in the Roman world as it is in the Greek world. In 70 AD, then, of course, you get the destruction of the temple. The Christians had already, by 60, 
removed primarily to Syria. At that time, you had two capitals of the church, primarily Rome and, and uh, Damascus and Syria. And the leaders of the church were there, and they were still very Jewish. I mean, these are Jewish Christian communities. And there's kind of a disconnect, if you will, between the Jews and, and the Gentile Greeks. And a large part of, of Christianity and Paul's letters write out of the conflict between those two worlds. And so it's inevitable that there would be an influence of Greek thought on Christianity because that's the world in which it grew up. That makes sense there. So I guess that answers my question. So basically, Christianity and its own theology grew up in a place where Greek thought was the main, in, in Greece itself. And therefore, yeah, like you said, it's it's inevitable just as, you know, anything that comes from American thought is going to be greatly influenced by American ideals. And so I guess that makes sense. So I didn't, I guess I didn't realize that it was primarily growing in Greece, or at least these original thoughts were. It's not just Greece, it's all of Asia Minor, but um, they're speaking primarily Greek as the, as the lingua franca and not Latin. And so at that point, early on, all the writers are in Greek up through 450. Just about every writer in Christianity is writing in Greek. The great exception, of course, is Augustine, who did not speak Greek well and wrote brilliantly. I mean, his prose in Latin is just incredibly moving and persuasive. And while I disagree with about everything Augustine thought in, in many ways, and I shouldn't say that. His his spirituality, his, his writings, can I think, are very instructive, and we can gain a lot from them. I gain a lot from them. But Augustine was had thoroughly imbibed Platonic thought, and his brilliant move was essentially taking it. And let me explain. There, there are two things that you need to understand about Greek thought before we can move forward. The first are the Platonic ideals. So you have these Platonic ideals, and they are things like justice and beauty. But they're, they're not merely justice and beauty and truth. They're also things like if you have a concept of a chair, they're chairness. There's this ideal of what a chair is, and the reason that a chair is what it is is there's this reality of what the essence of a chair is, and that's chairness. And so there's this ideal of being a chair. There's an ideal of humanity, <laughs> of anthropos. And, and so you get these ideal thoughts, which are the essence of what something is, when we're dealing with Greek thought, you take the greatest virtues and in Platonic thought. And so, for instance, um, God embodies these virtues, and, and truth is what it is, beauty is what it is, justice is what it is, because these are in the mind of God, and this is the way God thinks. And he thinks in terms, what he thinks are the, the Platonic realities or the, or the uh, Platonic ideals, according to Augustine. The other concept that one must have is that God, in this sense, is an ideal. He's, he's kind of a, a product of, of thought, pure thought, pure reason. Um, not pure reason in the Kantian sense, but pure reason in the sense that you can only arrive at these ideals through reason. You can't arrive at them through experience. Experience is misleading. Everything that happens in the material um, corporeal world is uh, misleading, it's a mere appearance, and it is devalued, whereas everything that is derived from this thought process where you arrive at the Platonic ideals, it's kind of like, if you've heard the myth, you know, the um, Socrates um, gives us the myth of the cave, actually Plato gives it to us, but, you know, he puts it in the mouth of Socrates, and so the the world that we live in is the world of these shadows bouncing on the back of the cave wall 
that are illuminated by a fire behind us and we're we're stuck we're we're chained into the cave and we can't get out of it but the way out of the cave is through reason itself reason alone which will bring us out into the sun to see the reality whereas before all we're seeing are shadows and so this world what is what is truly real what is truly valued um, are these platonic values and what is denigrated and devalued is the real world of experience the world of uh, material reality these are lesser than and god couldn't have anything to do with any of these things god couldn't be crass matter god cannot be limited to, to these mere shadows he is the pure truth and therefore has nothing to do with this world in which we actually live and move and have our being you can arrive at god by the way only through pure reason now uh, and reason alone. There's no admixture of what you think you know through experience. The other idea is that because God is arrived at through reason, we come up with a kind of absolute. Now, in, in this world, an absolute is something that is, is beyond human experience because it's arrived at through reason. And the absolute is an absolute upper limit. So they have a notion of perfection. God is the greatest of, of everything. And there is this upper limit to which perfection can go. And in all respects, whatever the absolute perfection is, that's what God is. But it created a problem because that kind of being really can't interact with the material world. It would be denigrating to God. It would be impossible for God to act in that way. And so there is this notion of, a, of what's known as a demiurge. A demiurge is a kind of half-god who sits halfway between humanity and these platonic ideals that define God. This demiurge actually interacts with this. And for many of the early Christian writers, like Justin Martyr, this demiurge becomes is the same as the notion of a mediator, okay? Somebody who stands between us and God. And so they take and meld these Hebrew ideas like the mediator with the notion of a, of a creator who, who creates you know, in and, and Justin Martyr believed in creation out of material or out of matter, but Irenaeus did not. He believed in creation ex nihilo, and and the reason that God must create ex nihilo is that He really can't have anything to do with the material world. It would be denigrating to God if He created in that way, according to the Greek value system and the Greek world. So those are the basic notions that one must have to begin to get an idea of Middle Platonism, and then as it was refined by Plotinus in, in Neoplatonism. All right, so that's kind of their starting point. That kind of goes through that next section, which is titled Emergence of the Absolutist Tradition of Christian Theology. That's basically what you just went through. So right. for this next section, it's titled The Logic of Absolute Independence. I'm going to read a paragraph, and then I have, I'm just going to go over what's called the cosmological argument, if you don't mind, and then you can come in after that. I'll introduce this person first. So there was a, I don't know when he lived. When did Thomas Aquinas live? He was in the 13th century, 1224 to 1274. All right, so there's a monk named Thomas Aquinas, and he was a very prolific writer, he's a very smart guy. I'm just read this paragraph, and I'll read what he calls a cosmological argument. All right, the, the Thomist theology is systematic. That is, it is logically interlocking in nature and all-inclusive in scope. Thomas believed that he could logically derive every divine property from a basic axiom adopted from Aristotle's philosophy. Everything is either caused or uncaused. The starting point of Aquinas' theology was, like Augustine, the notion of creation ex nihilo, or creation from nothing. 
Aquinas' system is the logical outcome of adopting the notion of perfection as a maximum upper limit and absolute independence of the world of flux and change. All right, so that's basic introduction here. Now I'm going to kind of go over what is called the cosmological argument. So this is an argument that Thomas Aquinas came up for the existence of God. And before this, the most popular form of argument for the existence of God was called the ontological argument, which I won't go into, but it doesn't really hold up according to Thomas Aquinas. So he came up with these things, and he based it really solidly in this Neoplatonic thought, and you'll see why as I read it here. So he had basically five arguments, three of them, they're all kind of the same thing. So this one argument summing up three arguments, but they're basically the same thing. So one, there are things that are A, in motion, or B, caused, or contingent. Two, these things require something else to move, cause, create them, and so on. And he believed this chain of causation can't go back forever, meaning there can't be an infinite regress of these causes. So, therefore, there must exist an unmoved mover, an uncaused cause, and an uncreated being. And his ultimate conclusion is this thing, this unmoved mover, uncaused cause, and uncreated being, everyone understands to be God. And that was his cosmological argument, or argument just based on his observation of the cosmos of and the chain of cause and effect. And so, based on what we just heard, we can see how very related that is to, I mean, it, it derived directly from Neoplatonic thought of these ultimate realities. So before we go into each of the actual attributes that he comes up with, what else do you think anyone would need to know about Thomas Aquinas and this argument? First, I'm not... he. He really didn't regard the ontological argument as inadequate. That can, the ontological argument actually comes later. But he's he's thinking through from a a system, and he cleaves the world the way that Aristotle does, and in, into those things that have potential and those things which do not. And so, potency is the ability of a thing to change or be other than it is, and and actuality is being. It's just being what a thing is. And so he divides the world into what is actual and what is potential. And God, of course, is the the greatest, the most complete actuality. He calls God the actus purus because he's writing in Latin. And what that means is pure act. There is no potentiality in God. God cannot be anything other than what he is for a very simple reason. And that is he, is, he hasn't realized all potential. He simply is pure actuality. There's no potentiality. And that's this is a very important starting point. And there, there are a few things to note. First of all, the works of Aristotle had been rediscovered. And so the primary influence on Thomas Aquinas is Aristotle and not Plato. He still, in fact, um, reading um, the Summa Theologica, the Summa Contra Gentiles, um, which is, are his primary, most influential works, what one gets is that he is very familiar with prior writers. He he quotes Lombard and, and Augustine, uh, many, many prior Christian writers. He's very well educated. Of course, he's writing in Paris. So, In any event, he's kind of developing a complete system, and he has other thinkers that he's building on. There's some of these same ideas had been provided either in germ or more highly developed way by others. Um, so he's not writing in a vacuum, but the way he does it is utterly comprehensive and unique in a very new way. And so we have Thomas Aquinas, who at least, you know, they call him the divine doctor. And I would say in terms of 
Catholic clerics, he has been the most influential writer in Catholicism. The clerics know him. I don't think hardly any of the laity really know Thomas Aquinas in Catholic thought. But any Christian, in my view, would benefit from being familiar with Thomas Aquinas. And, you know, think of the kind of commitment and piety it takes to to do the kind of thing that he was doing. So if my respect for these writers doesn't come through, I want to make it explicit. I've spent a lot of time with these writers. I've read them in Latin. I have a huge respect for them. Um, the fact that I disagree with them should not be taken to um, take away at all from the respect and honor that is due to them. So that's what I want to say. Okay, so I guess a brief summary before we actually go into the absolutist system attributes one by one. So brief summary. So we're talking about what most Mormons would call the apostasy. And I guess this takes a little explanation. So I think most Mormons conceive of apostasy as kind of after Christ died and the apostles died, the authority of the priesthood was lost from the earth. But I think the general people think of it more because people were evil and immoral, and therefore God slowly took it away because they were just so bad. But what you're positing here, which I think is more possible, is that people aren't necessarily evil, but that the pure ideas or, you know, the pure revelations that were present and the pure teachings of Jesus Christ were kind of inevitably corrupted with the people interpreting them through their own culture and through their own understanding. And let's they were trying to make sense of it, because let's face it, it's not very obvious how to interpret all these things. So they're doing the best they could with what they had. But according to Mormons, they skewed this idea of God into a being that isn't really the God of the Bible in any way. Before we go into this, I wanted to read this one thing. It said that based on these Neoplatonic ideas, also ideas influencing Thomas Aquinas of Aristotle, are not in the Bible in any way. You put, the early Christian writers held that scriptural statements must give way to this Neoplatonic vision of God rather than the other way around. So rather than going back to the Bible and saying, well, it doesn't really talk about God in this way here, therefore we have to change our idea of God, they did it the other way and they said, the Bible doesn't necessarily conform to the system that we've come up with, therefore we're going to reflect the system back on the Bible rather than having the Bible reflect on the system. Is that correct? Yeah, the way I would put it, and and I'm going to make several clarifications here because they're important. The first is that they adopted a hermeneutic where they interpreted the Bible through the lens of their prior and existing beliefs. Define hermeneutic, if you will. It's a theory of interpretation. It's the way one interprets matters. Now, let me say, you know, we, we, we may say, oh, evil and bad to do that, but it's inevitable everybody does that. <laughs> okay. Um, you have, if we have a pre existing worldview, we tend to read everything or see everything that we do through our existing way of seeing the world. And so they were doing, you know, what is kind of um, humanly dictated, and that is based on, on the way they saw the world. They read the scriptures, um, they discounted those scriptures that talked about God. Um, they called, you know, we have this fancy scholarly word, with, those are anthropomorphisms, which means we've adapted to speaking God about this way just because we're human being, and if we were human beings, we'd speak differently. How any human being could know that, I have no idea. It's a ridiculous assertion on its face, but, you know, the idea is we can't understand God, and so we speak of him in terms that we can't understand. The second, I want to talk about a bit the notion of apostasy, because I think a lot of Mormons have, there's this new trend in Mormonism to kind of water down the notion of apostasy to mean something like the priesthood was lost or the priesthood authority was lost, and that's all it means. It doesn't mean that anybody, that, that they got wrong ideas. Here's the thinking behind it, I think. 
look, these guys brought their worldview and their learning to Christianity, but so do Mormons. We're doing the very same thing. So that can't be the apostasy because we also change and, and we do the very same thing. So if that's the apostasy, we're also an apostasy. To that, my response is that's not quite accurate. The apostasy consists in primarily understanding God in terms that are impersonal rather than personal. Instead of the Hebrew personalistic concepts, a God who is very involved, very active, very responsive, almost like one person talking to another, we get a God that is well beyond human experience and human reach. And th those who are Thomas would feel like we're denigrating God to speak of him in those terms, but those, those are the scriptural terms. Those are the experiences of the prophets. And I think that Mormons who want to reduce the apostasy to nothing more than loss of the priesthood are really doing a disservice to what the early Mormons taught about the apostasy and to what the historical reality is about this change. Now, I think we would have to say that not all Christians, the good deal of the laity held, I mean, the, the, the priests who were writing, the philosophers who were writing always recognized that the, the laity had these crass materialistic ideas of God. They visioned God as a man with a beard on a throne, just like, you know, he's seen several times in vision in the Old Testament. But they thought that was a very crass way of thinking about God, that that was ridiculous. But that means that there were all kinds of Christians who actually held the very ideas that we're saying they, they lost, <laughs> okay? And, and what I want to say about that is very simple. And there were people who prayed. There were pious people who prayed. There were people who received personal revelations. There were wonderful, spiritual people from whom we can learn a great deal, whose piety and goodness far outstrip our own in many ways. And so I don't want to say that the people were sinful. I, don't want to, I certainly don't want to say they were stupid. And I don't want to say that everybody accepted these philosophical ideas, but what I do want to say is that a, a clerical class had been created. And the real keepers of the tradition were this clerical class of learned priests who had basically a view of religion that was quite apart from that maintained by most of the laity. And it's really in this clerical class that the apostasy is occurring because the only people who really have to worry about the business of God are those who are full-time clerics. And the way they're speaking of God, and, and I don't mean to say, you know, that the clerics don't pray to God, they don't receive revelations and so forth, but when they become learned, they, they detail a theology, what they come up with is really not something, in my view, that is reconcilable with the Hebrew personalistic experience of God. And that's a true loss, in my opinion. In my view, the, the highest and greatest thing that we know is human personality in its fullness. And we just don't know anything greater or more valuable in reality. And to take and, and make God an impersonal absolute in the sense that he really can't interact with us, does not interact with us, all influence is away from God and never toward God on such a view. That's a part of the apostasy. And maybe I could clarify and say the real apostasy consisted in creating two classes those who really know and, and uh, are the ones who were the keepers of the um, tradition, and they call it the tradition, because in Catholic thought that you have a tradition besides Scripture, which is just as potent in terms of detailing what the truth is. And this separate way of doing, you know, and relieving the others of the duty of really doing it on their own. Um, now, and, and that may be a bit naive, because the reality is, is most people couldn't read, they weren't literate. And they taught them the best they could, and, and it was only really the clergy that had the time to learn how to read and study and get into theology. 
<laughs> so, well, I want to be clear that I believe there was an apostasy that was intellectual in nature that included adopting an impersonal, absolutist view of God in the place of the God revealed in the Hebrew Scriptures. I don't want to overstate it to, to make it appear that nobody was receiving revelation, that there weren't humble, wonderful people who had spiritual experiences, and that we don't have anything to learn from them. I don't want to give that impression. So. All right, so let's just go right into this Thomas system, attribute by attribute. Like I said, I'll, I'll read a little bit and let you talk a little bit about it. Let's try to keep these brief. Let us begin. And some of these will be familiar, and you'll notice as we talk about them that they all build on each other and kind of depend on each other. And we'll talk about why that's both a strength of it, but also a weakness in the end. The first attribute that lays the groundwork is pure actuality. And to describe that, it basically means there is no potentiality in God to be anything he is not, which doesn't make a lot of sense, I agree, but think of it as God is pure act, and he must have no unrealized potential in general. And in your book, you give a ball rolling down a hill metaphor, so if you want to talk about that idea a little bit. Well, as I said, potential is, is just the ability to change or the ability to move. So if a ball is at the hill, in fact, we used to talk this way in terms of science, a ball is at the hill, it has what, we, what they used to call potential energy, and the energy is realized when it rolls down the hill. <laughs> so it has a potential to be at the bottom of the hill because gravity will move it down. We don't talk in terms of potential energy like that anymore, but at one time it was very common in the mid-20th century to talk about potential energy that way. But potential is just the the um, potency that something has to be something other than what it is to change. And you could, you know, we can think of it as as simply, it's, it's recognized as a kind of power that a thing has. And so water has a potency to freeze at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. It has the potency to boil at 212 Fahrenheit. Hydrogen atoms have the potency to interact with oxygen atoms to form water. So there are these kinds of potencies that things have. And the Christians and others in the Middle Ages tended to define natural law in terms of the potentialities, these potencies, natural tendencies or powers that things just had. Um, obviously, um, you know, a flower would have potencies that a dog doesn't have and vice versa. And so, you know, that's how they thought about natural law it was in terms of Aristotelian thought, which cleaved the world into things that are pure being or act and those things which have potentiality. Okay. And yeah, as we keep going, some of these will make more sense as we talk about the other parts of them. So, all right. The second one is divine simplicity. In my view, this is probably the hardest one to understand, unless you're an expert in medieval thought in general. But it's basically the idea that all of God's properties are identical to each other. God has no parts. So in this no parts, you could probably insert that God is, this is where probably the idea that God doesn't have a physical body would come into play, but that's not really what it's about. It's more about there are no internal relations in God, and he's not affected by anything outside of him. So, again, this is kind of hard for me to understand. If you could give a brief summary. There are actually very different ideas of divine simplicity, and people understand Aquinas in different ways. I mean, you know, Thomistic scholars. But basically, you've got it right. Think of it this way. If God were composed, let's say he were composed of parts, the fear would be he could fall apart. <laughs> into his more basic constituents. And that would be a defect, and of course God could have no such defect. But it actually follows from pure actuality. If you have parts, then potentially you're something different than you are because the parts can be rearranged. 
there would not necessarily be a potency if God had any parts. And But of course, immediately, divine simplicity is very hard to reconcile with a whole bunch of Christian commitments, including free will. In fact, you know, the idea of the Trinity, that there are any real distinctions in God because God is deemed to be divinely simple in this way. They're arriving to this thought because it, it, it's just natural way that you think of what's God? God has to be the greatest thing that there is. And so they think, what would be the greatest? Let's say he's perfect. Well, what does that mean? You'd have to be so perfect that you didn't have all of, I don't know. Well, think of it this way. This idea of perfection means that there's no potentiality left in God to be realized because he already is this upper absolute limit of perfection. So it's like a golf game. The per, you know, the perfect golf game is 18. God could be nothing less than 18. <laughs> okay? So there, there just is nothing potentially greater. If God changed in any way, he could either change for better or for worse. Since God is already the best that's possible, the only way he could change would be for the worse. So, you know, that's, it's that kind of an idea. All right. And I, I just point that out just because I think for a lot of Mormons, these ideas in general are actually still partly believed by some Mormons, but they don't, this, what we're, the way we're talking about them now is to kind of understand where that leads logically, and I don't think we can accept where they lead logically. Uh, the next one is immutability. None of God's intrinsic properties change, meaning God is absolutely changeless. This one, unlike some of the others, does actually have at least a verse or two that refers to God as not being changeless, which we'll discuss with another way to interpret that when we talk about process theology. But basically, if I could sum this up, if God can change, it would mean either God could change for the better, meaning he wasn't already perfect in all that he could be, and therefore that doesn't make sense because he has to already be perfect, and God can't change for the worse because, well, obviously that would be worse. So God can't change in any sense. He has to be immutable. Yeah, and immutability also follows both from um, pure actuality and also from pure simplicity. Because there's no potentiality, there's no possibility for God to change. However, we'll talk about this later. I have an entire chapter on the ways in which God ought to be conceived to change and ways in which he is not conceived to change. And I want to emphasize something here, and that is that this notion only holds that God does not change in his intrinsic properties. So God could change from being the object of a person's love to being the object of a person's hate, but the change wouldn't be in intrinsic properties of God. It wouldn't be a change in God. It would be a change in the person, right, who is, is either hating or loving God. So we want to say that extrinsic or relational properties of God can change. It's possible for everything that we think about God to change. But God in his, in his intrinsic properties, in his actual being, does not change on this view. The fourth one is timeless eternity. God transcends temporal succession. In other words, the past, present, and future are all possessed at once in the divine. I think some Mormons actually probably hold this view still. So you're probably very familiar with it already, but this basically is just the view that, well, I don't think Mormons believe this, but they believe that all things are present before him. God is, has to be outside of time here. And a way that someone explained it to me, which at least makes sense in my head, not making sense as though I accept it, I'm just saying makes sense, is it's kind of like God can see, like, it's like a guy standing up on a high hill or something, and there's a parade going down below, and he can see the beginning of the parade and the end of the parade all before him. And so it's it's all there at the same time, but to the people in the parade, it's as though they're passing by something or time's passing, but not, not to God. Yeah, and you probably got that analogy from two chapters later in the book where I use it. But Likely. 
<laughs> These also are interlocking with the prior attributes. If God is, is outside of time, then he can't change in any respect, because if he changed, there would have to be a way he was before the change and a way he was after the change, and that requires successive moments. So in order for God to be able to change, he would have to be, in some sense, temporal or in, t- in time in some sense. And so timelessness also entails a very strong sense of immutability. If God is outside of time, he can't change in any respect because there can't be a way. No before or after, yeah. <laughs> and, and so you begin to see how with Thomas Aquinas, all of these ideas are reinforcing. I mean, you can begin to see the beauty of, of his thought because it's like, wow, every time I think of a new attribute, it just it follows so beautifully and, and dovetails so beautifully with whatever else I'm thinking about God. And the idea of timelessness was also essential in Thomas Aquinas's treatment of God's knowledge of the world. And we'll get to that, of course, uh, later in uh, later chapters. But it's important to understand that, that timelessness also resolved the, the problems of God's knowledge and his relation to the world and how there could be free will for Aquinas. I don't accept as sound any of his solutions but one would have to admit that his approach to this is just brilliant, I believe. A lot of people still hold it today. Yeah, it's a very, very learned. Uh, I, I have some very good friends at Notre Dame who are Thomas, and they think that Thomas Aquinas is dead on when it comes to thinking about God. And they're, they're very bright people. All right, so the fifth attribute he talks about is aseity, and that's kind of a weird word, but basically assay just means self-sufficient or independent of all other realities. For anything that he is, as you said, these kind of follow from one another. So God can't depend on anything else for what he is because that would make him less Needy. somehow. Yeah, he would He would need something. He can't. If he is the first cause, there can be nothing else that he depends on because he has to be the first one. Yeah, and, and he has to be totally sufficient as the first one. So a seity uh, existing, but a seity also has this implication, and that is all the causal influences are... God acting and causing things to be the way he wants them to be in one eternal act, okay? (laughs) By eternal, I mean outside of time. And nothing ever influences God, which also we'll find in the next one, impassibility. But Asadi has the immediate implication that all causal influences move away from God, never toward God. Sixth one is impassibility. This is one that I think most Christians that would read about God in the Bible would have a hard time understanding how this one could be true, given what it says about God in the Bible, unless you have a drastically different reading. Anyway, impassibility is the idea that nothing outside of God affects him in any way. In other words, God's bliss or his, you know, his eternal upper limit of whatever state of being that he's in is not disturbed by anything outside himself, no matter what happens. Yeah, I mean, it, God would, would eternally be engaged in the highest endeavor, and the highest thing that he could think about is himself, and so he eternally contemplates his, his own beauty and glory. Um, it, it begins to look like a very narcissistic, self-absorbed God that we have, but there's also, there is this sense, and there's an important sense, and I have a full chapter later on on impassibility as well, but the, the general notion is is that nothing perturbs God, nothing affects God, and, and I give nine different definitions of what impassibility could mean in the later chapters, so I'm not going to parse it all those ways now, but the bottom line is that God's happiness isn't disturbed by anything that happens in the world, and nothing affects him or influences him. All right, the next two Mormons we'll be very familiar with, so we'll probably spend a little less time on them. Seven is omniscience, which just means God knows everything. But in Thomas' system, or the absolutist system, 
He knows everything, including the past, the present, and the future. And there you go. For Thomas, this is a much more sophisticated notion, and, and it is this. God knows because he is the formal cause of all things what exists. Remember, nothing acts on him. We know because things act on our eyes to see, they act on our bodies to feel. We gain knowledge through our senses. But that's because things act on us. Nothing can act on God in that way. He could have no experiential knowledge at all, period. So how would God know what's happening in the world, especially a world that changes from time to time? And the answer is, well, everything that happens flows from God's causal, formal cause of the world. And again, Thomistic scholars parse this view in different ways and, and interpret Aquinas in different ways to make sense of this. I've never been able to make sense of it, and I've studied it a great deal. But the bottom line is that God knows because he causes what there is to be the way that it is. <laughs> okay, next one's omnipotence. Again, pretty familiar with that. Um, in the Thomas system, omnipotence basically means God can do anything at all that's logically consistent. So the only thing God couldn't do would be like make things that are logical contradictions, like a square circle, things that just don't make sense at all. Yeah, what, what what he's saying is, if you have a logically incoherent notion, God can't bring it about that a logically incoherent notion could actually exist. Uh, and so the only limit on God is, and, and since the logically incoherent in reality is just nonsense, it doesn't exist at all, there's really no limit on God's power, okay? Right. Because the logically impossible just doesn't exist at all, there's, and it's a non-reality, there are no limits to God's power. And anything that is logically possible to be, God can bring about. Which is pretty intense if you think about it. Well, and it will run into this problem later. It's possible for me to bring about my free acts, but it's not possible for God to bring about my free acts. So even though my free acts are logically possible, God can't bring them about. So later on, we're going to look at the notion of omnipotence and refine it. These weren't necessarily included in the chapter, but you put them in the diagram at the end. So I'm just going to go over them. So these aren't necessarily part of the Thomas system explicitly, but they are implied by them. So we'll just go over them briefly. So first thing is incorporeality, which basically just means God does not have a body and is not characterized by any physical or material properties. And as you can see, that's important just because that's not the kind of being God is. God is completely other than us. It's completely other than the entire universe, in fact. Yeah, well, and, and it is part of the Thomas system. But he more or less takes it for granted that it's so obvious that God is not material that he uses it as a premise to reduce to absurdity any ideas that would be inconsistent. Uh, and so he has expressed statements that God, in terms of divine simplicity and in, in terms of God's actuality, God couldn't possibly be material because there's always potentiality in, in matter. There are always parts to matter. He couldn't be because if he had an arm. His arm could move slightly, and that's a change, and he couldn't even have that kind of change. Just Right, and he'd have to be in time. So the notion that there would be something material about God is totally inconsistent with the entire Thomistic system. All right, the next one is omnipresent, which basically means God is literally present to all places and all times simultaneously. Yeah, and I think the way I understand Aquinas is that what he means is that God is acting, his action and will are realized at any given place at any given time, because there's no thing that God is to be present, okay? There's no material that God is to be present in the, in the way that we think about presence. But God can realize his will at any given place at any given time. All right, and then the next two are, like I said, these are kind of implicit in the arguments or in the system. 
God is the creator ex nihilo, which means that God created everything from nothing. And like I said, if, well, I guess there's this idea. God is a necessary being. He must exist of necessity, whereas everything else is contingent. Right. It follows immediately from the third cosmological argument from contingency that he must create ex nihilo, because if everything is contingent, there couldn't be any kind of pre-existing matter. All right, and then the next one, kind of the same thing. Absolute necessity just means every truth about God's intrinsic properties is necessarily true. God is not open to any contingent fact in his being, and that's kind of what we talked about already. That idea falls from virtually every of the one of the attributes we've talked about so far. And just to sum this up, I want to read this from your book. It says, Indeed, many critics of Thomism believe that if God is altogether unaffected by the world, and it makes no difference to God whether the entire world is lost in unbearable misery and pain, then so much the worse for God. Does the notion of a perfect being really require that we are simply superfluous to God? Those are things to consider in that system. So like I said, a lot of people hold to this, but in the end, if you look at it, and I don't, I don't think a lot of Christians realize kind of what these metaphysical commitments are, that if you, if you go this way, literally God can't really relate to you in any way, at least not in any way that you would consider normal relatedness. Right, and certainly not in the ways envisioned in the in the Hebrew experience of God, in the Israelite experience of God. Certainly in not in those ways. <laughs> or or if God does interact in those ways, it's because he's creating an appearance so that we can understand him. And he is really very different than he appears to be when he appears to us in vision and so forth. They obviously they have a way of reconciling this with scripture. 